Hello and welcome back to Millennial Ag, where agriculture is always on tap and no topic is off limits. Thanks for joining us this week, your co-hosts, Valley and Likely and Catherine Lotspeech. Listeners, we have got a great episode for you this week, but before we dive into that, uh, we have a couple of housekeeping items we wanted to bring up with you. Valine and I made our TV debut last week on Idaho Reports, the Idaho PBS channel, um, and we were talking about uh, coronavirus's impact on agriculture production and particularly ag producers and what they're facing right now. So we are really proud of that segment. We were really excited to do it. Um, you can find it on all of our social media platforms, Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Millennial Ag. You can also find it on IdahoReports.com and the episode is called Ripple Effects. So check that out. Let us know your feedback um, and we're looking forward to doing it again. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. Um, you, you're welcome to listen to the whole episode, or if you just want to tune into Millennial Ag segment, it starts about 11 minutes, I believe. Um, so you can fast forward to that. Um, with that, we'll dive into this week's episode. You know, we are in week seven of quarantine, and um, agriculture just continues to take hits. And so this week, uh, we are stepping out of our own comfort zones just a little bit. Um, you know, we talk a lot about beef and dairy and, and animal protein on this podcast, but this week we've got something a little bit different. Yeah, it's we're kind of flying over to the east coast or southeast coast of, in Florida, and we're going to look at the vegetable and the produce market. Catherine and I's background, as most of you listeners know, is in dairy and beef, and and I have a little row crop experience, but it's all to feed the cows. And so we wanted to get a different perspective. Um, it's dumping produce has also been a hot topic in agriculture and affecting people in our communities, even if they are clear across the country. So we, yes, so we are very blessed to have a couple of farmers from Florida, as Valine mentioned this week. Uh, first, we have uh, Brittany Lee, who farms with her family on a blueberry farm and is also the executive director of Florida Blueberry Association. So, Brittany, do you want to tell us a little bit more about yourself and your background? Sure. Um, you know, I grew up in a, a family business that was, um, it was an ag rural real estate development company. We were very familiar with civiculture and pine tree management. Uh, which is a little bit more of a passive agricultural uh, operation. Uh, but in 2010, uh, we had a piece of property that was once owned by the company, uh, by the real estate company. Uh, and we decided to start a second family business, uh, something really more long-term for future generations uh, and go into something more intensive in agriculture. And we settled on blueberries. Uh, blueberries in the area outside of uh, Gainesville, where our farm is, uh, is a it's a very popular specialty crop, uh, mostly due to the breeding program at the University of Florida IFAS. And uh, you know we were excited and uh, really ready to jump in um, with both feet to to the specialty crop industry. And um, I would say in the last four years, you know things have just drastically changed uh, kind of what you hinted to on your intro as far as what the, the outlook looks for long-term Florida agriculture, uh, which is the second largest industry in the state. We're not just beaches and Disney. You know, agriculture is the second largest industry in our state. Uh, and it's, it's at risk of, um, you know, not being able to continue. It's not just blueberries. It's, it's everybody in Florida producing, um, 
you know, these are very trying times for the, the Florida producer. Certainly. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, in Colorado, agriculture is also our second largest industry and um, we're having similar similar issues, but we're excited to hear about it from your point of view. So we'll dive into that in just a little bit. Uh, Derek, we have with us Derek Orsonigo, who is um, a farmer in the Everglades agricultural area, growing specialty crops um, like lettuce, spring mix, cilantro, parsley, some sweet corn, rice, and sugar cane. Um, Derek, do you want to give a little bit more about yourself and your background? Yeah. Um, so our operation started in uh 1985 when my dad started our farm um, and back then we were growing the same the same uh, mix of fresh market leafy items romaine lettuce iceberg lettuce uh, green leaf red leaf lettuce parsley cilantro uh, bib in boston endive escrolls some specialty items um, today we have two companies um, there's growers management with his uh my dad and his partner David Basor, and then there's Orsonigo Farms. So between the two, we grow the uh, we grow the full line of leafy items. We also grow sweet corn, and Orsonigo Farms grows sugarcane and rice. Awesome. Well, thank you both for your introductions, and I think we're going to have a really great conversation. Um, you know, we've talked the last couple of weeks about dumping milk. Um, you know, straight into lagoons or, or land applying it. We've talked about last week. We talked about um, animal protein being um, having a lot of challenges, particularly with supply chain logistics and management. So, we're excited to help shine a light on um, on specialty crops and produce and and hearing what's going on in those areas. Yeah, it's fascinating to me just because it's it is agriculture, but it's a little different operation than than milking cows or or beef production and to maybe Brittany give us a little bit of a background of why some of these specialty crops are having to dump or plow under um, their produce right now so I think you know to answer that question we really have to go outside of what's happening right now which everybody's very focused on COVID uh, but you have to rewind several years and understand you know, where the industry has been going. For Florida blueberries, there was once a time where the only, there was three weeks of the year where the only fresh blueberries in the world came from Florida. And Mexico has very specifically targeted our market window. In 2010, there was 1.8 million pounds of Mexican blueberries in the U.S. during Florida season, which is March, April, and May. Last year, there was 53.8 million pounds of Mexican blueberries in the same window. That is a significant increase, uh, and that's not a natural, you know, increase. Uh, that is a very targeted, um, it's a targeted move, really, I think, to take over the, the Florida blueberry market. And once everyone here can't afford to do business anymore, we're all out of business, you know, they'll fill that space easily, and then the, the prices will go back up. Um, if you look at the pricing uh, curves, you know, in 2016, I'm getting right now uh, in week 15, which is April 1st, which is a very, it's a peak time for Florida blueberries. Uh, week 15, there's maybe a 20 or uh, 20 to 25% of the price in 2016 that we were getting in week 15 is what we're getting this year in week 15. Uh, and there's a 50% reduction versus last year. So I mean, that's getting a little bit technical and, and going down a rabbit hole, but, but basically the price has already been cut in half 
from 2016 to 2019. Mexico has been strangling Florida blueberries, you know, for four years. And then this is the fifth year and COVID-19 is trying to finish us off. Um, a 50% price reduction from this year versus last year. And last year's pricing was already super deflated because of the Mexican imports. It's just not sustainable for Florida agriculture. They were able to produce blueberries at a much lower cost. They have government subsidies. In Florida and in the United States, we have the highest food safety standards uh, to adhere to. We have a quality product, a safe product, but it costs us more money to, uh, to produce that. So it's been an ongoing, slow process over the years and just the COVID and a few market shares cut quickly might just is devastating or is the final struggle that you guys are dealing with absolutely that that week 15 which is the first week of april there was a 70 percent sales reduction because of covid so you know we've already been struggling we've already got this you know massive influx of mexican blueberries into our market and then this year because covid happened to be during our six to eight week window uh, sales were just plummeting. 70% reduction in sales in a week is significant as Florida is ramping up in their season. Wow. So I've got a couple more questions before we jump over to Derek. Um, just real quickly, are there, are there um, you know, policies or regulations in place to prevent Mexico from doing this? And what is happening with all of these blueberries that don't have a way to get to market? So there, there is no policy to prevent Mexico from doing this. It's actually the opposite. Um, USMCA, which is the new NAFTA, mm-hmm. uh, very specifically left out specialty crops. We, we have been suffering under NAFTA in Florida agriculture since the original NAFTA agreement was, uh, was signed. And USMCA did absolutely nothing for specialty crop growers. It did nothing for Florida agriculture. Almost the opposite. It basically, in my opinion, it was telling Mexico, hey, it's okay that for 20 years you guys have been doing this and you've been putting our growers out of business. That's okay. Because we're going to just continue on. Uh, it, you know, the administration said several times we didn't go backward. Well, we didn't go backward. There was nothing in us for NAFTA either. Uh, And the changing situation in Mexico, as far as berries are concerned, you know, in 1997, there was no Mexican blueberries in in the U.S. market. Even in 2010, there was only 1.8 million in our window. And to have 53.8 million pounds in that short period of time, that's just an insane rapid growth. I think it shows clear intent uh, to put Florida growers out of business. And we just can't continue... Uh, with zero to a slim to zero profit margins um, in a normal year versus this year where we're getting 50% of of the prices that we were getting um, last year, which was already, like I said, already a significantly deflated market. All right. Wow. Wow. There's a lot to unpack in there. And then, Just really quick, what is, what is happening with the blueberries right now? Are you leaving them in the field, on the, on the bushes, plowing them under? What's going on with those? So that's a farm-to-farm decision. For me personally, today I was picking hand-picked blueberries at a 15 to 20 cent loss. Okay, I already have money in it. 
but I was picking uh, at a loss because I would lose less if I picked it than what I already than what I would lose if I left it. Um, the margins are a little bit better on machine picked, but Florida blueberries are not made to machine harvest. Uh, the southern highbush blueberry, which is the species that we grow, is a very sensitive uh, variety. I'm sorry, a very sensitive species. Uh, and certain varieties are more conducive to machine harvesting. But I would say several years ago, uh, there were very few people machine, machine harvesting uh, Florida blueberries. Um, but now because of margins and, and because of labor issues and constraints and, and quite frankly, the cost, uh, growers are forced to um, reduce their overall production and put a machine in, which of course you're going to lose, you know, pounds with, with each picking um, to just try and survive. All right. Wow. Like I said, lots to get into there. Let's jump over to Derek. Um, Derek, what, why are, why are you guys having to dump right now or, or plow under or, you know, significantly reduce whatever you're sending to market? What's going on with vegetables? So on our side, what we've seen is um, just based on this virus, the, the retail business, the wholesale business, um, and the food service industry has just evaporated. Um, you know, springtime is a big time for, for our, our harvest season down here. We're, we're finishing our, our second crop. And, you know, normally March and April are good months. We finish the first half of May. And quite frankly, when the virus started, we saw a big spike in, in sales and orders, um, you know, for the initial, say, two, to two, three, four days to kind of meet some of that demand from some of the panic buying. Mm-hmm. After that, it, it almost stopped on a dime. And, and all those orders stopped because of the, you know, the quarantines and the restrictions and and I think fresh vegetables and fresh fruits became uh, became like a luxury, and people were people were tending to buy more shelf stable items, frozen items, meals ready to eat. They weren't necessarily spending their money on on uh, fresh items, and and so we're having to disc up our crops because there's such a finite harvest window. Um, you know, I wish it was like a citrus tree where you know you could have it for thirty days or you know, you have a longer harvest window, um, or sugarcane even, but with fresh vegetables, there's uh, certain quality standards to meet and maturities before these plants go backwards and, and, um, you know, they're not marketable. So, so it pretty much has to be cut right now. And, and if not, you can't really salvage it. You can to a certain extent, but you know, this time of year is starting to get hot. We're getting more rains, more humidity. And, and instead of being able to, to harvest a certain leaf planting, maybe over a week, let's say that, that window might be reduced to three days. Um, and so that's, that's, what's happening to us is that the, the volume of orders, the quantity of orders has, uh, slowed down to, I'd say under 50% of what they should be. Wow. And, and then because of that, we're having to leave, leave crops in the field. And, and so, you know, like I mentioned earlier, some of our items are wholesale, some are food service, a little bit of retail and, and, um, 
you know, for instance, our, one of our big uh, food service customers that takes a lot of our spring mix, their orders have drastically slowed down. I'd say greater than 50%. So they're, you know, they were looking at, a, at an instant loss, um, you know, if it can't be cut on a particular day. So that's the challenge now is, is just catching that window when you can, but knowing that you're going to take a loss and trying to mitigate the losses when you can. If you get an opportunity to, to, to get some of those orders and, and harvest what you can, then you take it. But, you know, you're kind of, you're kind of looking at a deficit. So Derek, just a question we get asked a lot is why can't we just harvest it and donate that stuff? Yeah, we, we've been asked that uh, a lot and, you know, farmers are very giving just in general. We want to donate. Uh, we frequently donate. We want to help. But it gets to a point where what we run into is um, the churches that we donate to, the food banks, the, the homeless shelters, the schools. Well, and really, you could take the schools out because schools are closed. But all those avenues have filled up because, you know, there's only so much that they can take and move. And then you have a lot of farmers doing the same thing. So, um, you know, we're given to every avenue that we can, but it gets to a point where, where they're full and they can't take any more. But then also the reality that every farmer faces and, and kind of like what Brittany mentioned is there are harvest costs associated with that. And while we do, we do, uh, we do donate and we like to give, there is a there there does come a point where you have to evaluate your cost um because we are running a business at the end of the day and and we donate what we can but um you know to to have all your harvest cost in and zero return is is kind of tough especially given the, the circumstances so you know we're given as absolutely as much as we can but uh you know those avenues have filled up as well what about being able to sell it as cow feed, pig feed, you know, livestock feed for, for fruit or for vegetables. I mean, is that a possibility or the logistics just don't really work out? There's not enough livestock in Florida. I, I really don't. Well, like for, for me, you know, yesterday I spent several hours looking at a, a field uh, that we, one of the varieties we had abandoned uh, last week. And so I went with my machine harvester and went through the whole field and tried to figure out, you know, there's 20,000 pounds in the field can I pick it for process or can I pick it for juice or can I pick it for something and make something on it? Uh, and we figured that on a good, if everything went well, I might make one or $2,000 on the 20,000 pounds. But if it didn't go well and it had to go to a lower grade juice or something like that, I'd be way, way more backward than the $2,000 profit. So I just decided not to do it. I mean, I just, we can't do that. Um, and like I said earlier, you know, I, I like how he had said that, you know, the sales evaporated, the sales evaporated to go from a hundred percent sales or 120% sales in week 14 and 13 to 70% loss of sales, uh, it, overnight they did evaporate. And like I said, right now on handpicked, you know, we're, we're already picking at a loss the, to answer his question that you, you posed, even though it wasn't posed to me, um, I just, we're, farmers are very charitable people, but if you take what I have in the, what I have in a pound and then what it costs me to pick a pound and don't even 
consider the transportation to a facility, that, that is a significant, significant cost. Um, that, you know, for example, just yesterday, we filled two semi loads of blueberries yesterday, which is about 50,000 pounds. Well, hand picked, it costs $1.15 to $1.20 to pick it. And then my harvest costs are around a dollar. So if I had donated that, let's pretend the transportation was free. I just went in the hole $100,000 for a donation in a year that I'm not anywhere close to, to breaking even. Nowhere close. Um, so the, yes, in an ideal world, it'd be great to donate all this excess, excess produce, but you know, I can't afford to donate it. That's, I appreciate you spelling some of that out because I think the media grabs onto all this negative stuff already, but the fact that, well, let's just give it away or give it away. Well, there's a lot more logistics that are going behind these decisions and they're not easy decisions. Nobody wants to see years and years of production just be plowed under or just left on the trees or, or whatever decisions are having to be made. So we really appreciate some of those insights, especially on the crop side of things in Florida. Are you guys, where, I guess, where do we go from here though? Is it looking up? Is it looking promising or how do we, how do we get through this as agriculturalists? Derek? <laughs> yeah. Okay, you um, the hard one. <laughs> the positive thing that I guess you could say is that at least for us, it started at the tail end of our deal. Um, you know, so we just kind of have to tough it out these last eight weeks is kind of how we look at it. It was, it was not a good year uh, to begin with. We were, we were not having a good year to begin with and you put this on top of it and it, uh, you know, it makes it tough, but at least we could see the finish line. So, you know, we're thinking, all right, let's get to, let's get to the early part of May, get what we can get out. And by the time it's, it's uh, Labor Day, about the time we start planning again, that this will be passed and, and, and we can start fresh. You know, had this started back in November or December when our harvest season would, was just taking off, it, it would have been, it'd have been a disaster, quite frankly. So, you know, farmers are people of faith anyway. Um, so I just, I just think you look forward and, and hope the leaders sort it out and we start fresh in the fall is our attitude and, you know, start fresh and just turn the page on this one. So to add what he just said, you know, the Florida, the, the blueberry industry, we only have six to eight weeks at most on any given farm in the state to make an income and to make a profit, hopefully, to go toward what we've paid the other, you know, 48 weeks of the year or 46 weeks of the year. We spend money all year round and we only have a six week window to harvest our crop, to pay back our harvest cost, and to hopefully have something to put in toward next year's cost. So for COVID to have hit during that six week window, which is the only opportunity to make any income, you know, for the entire year, it is devastating for Florida blueberries. It is absolutely devastating. So Derek, I know before, um, before we started this, you and I had talked a little bit about um, crop insurance or government aid. And can you, can you walk us down that path a little bit? Are you, are you eligible for crop insurance? Um, you know, what's, what's the situation there? Is there, a little, is there a little bit of a way to recoup losses here? 
you know, from the insurance side, um, there's not insurance offered for what we grow. Um, and for many of the vegetables in the state, it's not um, just because they're such, they're such high risk crops, a lot of volatility, um, high value crops where it's, you know, you, you could really, really lose it pretty quick um, in a high, you know, high value crop like that. So there's many that are not insurable and ours is one of them. So we do not receive insurance. Um, on the plus side, with some of these programs that are out there with the, the payroll protection program and some of the USDA programs, we're looking into that. And, um, you know, that's, that's, if we're able to, to apply and attain those, then that'll at least help, you know, um, at least help the situation. Okay. And what about for blueberries, Brittany? So similarly on the crop insurance, you know, uh, the typical crop insurance um, policy does not cover crop loss due to lack of market or um, lack of labor to be able to pick the crop. Uh, and unless there's some sort of uh, congressional declaration saying that COVID-19 was going to be um, so unless COVID-19 uh, is declared by Congress or, or RMA or, or someone as um, a loss that we were able to make a claim for, as our current policy stands, you know, that's not an option. Um, as far as these other programs, yes, PPP uh, for any farmer that's able to get it um, would be helpful. Uh, I know that different institutions, um, their application really didn't provide for the seasonality formula, which for specifically Florida blueberries, the vast majority of my payroll costs are in this six to eight week window. But if I have to divide that over 12 months, as opposed to the two and a half months that the seasonality formula allows, uh, it's a significant decrease in the amount of loan that I would be able to get. Uh, so that's an issue. Uh, that some farmers are having. Um, you know, there's the coronavirus farm assistance program, I think is what it's called. Uh, again, that hasn't completely rolled out yet to know what the uh, guidelines are going to be um, to apply for that. But yes, I think anything, any program that is available for the Florida farmer, for the American farmer uh, to try and get through this season, there's no amount of money that, uh, that the government could could throw at agriculture that would make everyone whole. It's just not possible. But right. to be able to get people to a level where they're able to continue for another year, that's kind of what we're what we're facing. Uh, no one will be whole after after this disaster. Uh, but we just we just want to be okay enough to be able to afford another year of cost, waiting for that. April payday um, of next year. You know, most people that aren't in agriculture, you know, I understand that not receiving a paycheck for a week or two weeks or a month, that feels difficult. But when your entire paycheck comes in a six week period of the year, and not only do you not get that, but you don't pay back what you had in it, that's a completely different level of, of devastation. Yeah. She brings up a good point is, is that even with all these programs from the government, um, you know, I mean, really it's, and it's helpful. Don't get me wrong, but it, it, at the end of the day, it is just a bandaid. It, it doesn't fill in the hole that you dug and, and you certainly want to apply and take advantage of it, but it, uh, you know, to not, 
to not have a, a good year and then throw this virus on top of it, it's, um, you know, it's a big challenge to overcome um, because there's so many affected, you know, there's livestock, there's, there's dairy, there's the, the row crop guys, there's what we do, fresh fruits and vegetables. So there's so much to go around. Um, but you know, that's where I feel like Florida, Florida is so unique because we're so perishable and it's, and we're at such a, we're already at a competitive disadvantage to Mexico week in and week out. Now, we don't face the, the onslaught, unfortunately, like the, the blueberries. I mean, we do a little bit with some of the parsley and cilantro, a little bit of leafy items, but it's not, not as bad as other folks. Uh, but we do, we do get it. And, um, you know, because we already have all these, these challenges, it makes this year even, even more tough. And, and one other point I wanted to go back to is that, you know, despite this virus, you know, everyone, at least in our area, is continuing to push forward. And, and so, so while you know you might be growing and harvesting a crop at a loss, we're continuing to employ our people week in and week out. We haven't laid anybody off. Um, we're continuing to employ these people because they've got to make a living as well. So I think that's something that should be noted about farmers in general is that we're, you know, we're, we're pushing forward in this challenge. So we're pushing forward, we're employing people. And, and even though we're, we're kind of, you know, looking up, we're underwater, so to speak. I mean, still got to get out of it. Absolutely. I, I really love that point, you know, going back to what you said earlier about farmers are largely people of faith. Um, I think that that rings so incredibly true, you know, across the agricultural sector and, and we are just plowing on because there's really nothing else for us to do, you know, across the industry. And, you know, just a huge thank you to you guys for, for continuing to employ people, continuing to produce, you know, even under the immense pressure and struggles that you're facing right now. It's really refreshing too, just because agriculture, we're, we're bred to be tough, I think. Um, and so just to, to see that we can get through this, it's going to be difficult, but just having that faith that, that we'll get out of this and we're all in this together. And I, it's, it's brutal, but to know that we got this, I think is a great mentality to at least try to keep some of our sanity through this because it's not easy. And I guess kind of to wrap up, how do we encourage people to help you guys to get through this? Or how do we, how do we get the message? Do we encourage more leafy greens to be bought at the stores? Do we encourage American blueberries to be bought? How do we get the message to, to the American people that are home right now? I think the silver lining that has come out of this is that there is a push on the consumer side for awareness that if, if there was, nobody, nobody knew that this pandemic was coming, but if there was another similar global situation, you know, if we lose the ability to produce our nation's food source and we are completely reliant on other countries to do so because year after year after year we we insist on the on saving a few cents to the dollar to buy non-domestic product you know i think the consumer awareness has has really been um refreshing you know for me as a as a farmer because finally people might understand you know, there could be a situation in the future where something could happen. And now that we've put all the American farmers out of business, you know, we're reliant on Mexico for blueberries and tomatoes and we're reliant on, you know, 
China for citrus and you know, whoever else, like maybe Canada for, for milk. And any one of those countries decides not to supply us with food. You know, I think that is the real um, eye-opening lesson that, that a lot of people are starting to learn because of the pandemic. You know, I think it's important that America knows that in Florida, we're still farming. You know, American farmers are still farming. And we need to be more insistent to buy American-grown products over, you know, the non-domestic um, competition when we're in season here as a nation. I don't have any problem buying blueberries, you know, in January or February when there's no state in the U.S. that produces them. But once Florida comes in, and we're the very we're the cornerstone of domestic production. Um, once Florida comes in, I I believe that you should be supporting American agriculture all the way up the East Coast to Michigan, from California all the way to Washington. You know, when there's a domestic source, I think we as a as an American consumer need to demand that we support that domestic source. I love it. Just start start with buying American produce. Um, period. And if you can buy from your state when we're, when we're in season, but, but number one, just buy, buy American produce. Points very well taken. You know, we've mentioned several times in this podcast that food security is national security. And, uh, you know, it's taken something like this to make it obvious that that is something that we need to take very seriously, you know, make it obvious to the general consuming public agriculturists know this, but, um, you know, it, it takes, you know, pretty big slap in the face to realize that we need to be supporting homegrown everything, you know, from, from food to fuel, to fiber, everything to, to maintain. Medicine. Yep. Medicine too, to maintain our own security. Um, and, and, you know, survivability. So um, thank you both very much for joining us. Any parting words from either of you? I really appreciate your time and uh, your, your willingness to you know really share our message from here in the in the southeast um and i'm sure derek would would echo that um we just encourage you know your listeners buy american uh, buy fresh from florida uh, but support your support your local farmer and local could be in your state or you know in the u.s and i think that's the the takeaway that's you know so important from this pandemic that we've all learned um, you know, we need to support agriculture in this, in this country, and we need to support, you know, our ability to be self-sufficient. It doesn't really matter if we import all of our phones and TVs from other countries, uh, but if we can't eat and we can't supply our own population with food, that's devastating. I can live without an iPhone and I could live without a TV, but, you know, you can't live without agriculture. Right. Yeah. And I'd, I'd say the same thing to start, you know, start off with is buy American produce, buy from your state when you can um, just be mindful of where your food comes from because it is, it is our ultimate source of security. And, uh, and thank you again for getting our story out there because it's hard for us right now. Um, but at the end of the day, farmers like myself and Brittany, uh, we're still going, we could have closed the door, locked the gate, walked away, but we're still going. Thank you both so much again for taking time this evening to talk with us and interview and tell your story. Um, we, I learned a lot and I look forward to staying in touch and seeing, seeing how you guys come out of this and 
what the next steps um, forward are. So listeners, thank you for tuning into this week's episode of the Millennial Ag Podcast. You can find us on all um, social media platforms, or you can even email us, Catherine at millennialag.com. Thank you. Thank you.